Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at Office Hours Talk Global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital and general media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. Our own Jeff Francis is going to help walk us through probably one of the most important pieces of equipment that we have in production, which is our audio mixer. So if you've got questions about audio mixers, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. And uh, right now we're going to go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Uh, today, our first question comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy says, is there a good source for virtual event success metrics? Executives respond well to data when, the event, when they're event planning. Thanks. Go ahead, Jason. I've always used mean per capita view time. Um, I think it is the most reliable thing. Um, it takes a little bit of um, explanation, but I found that most people uh, grab onto it as an actual metric um, pretty easily. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I, uh, I I'm not sure how much data is out there right now that people are keeping track of. And, and you know, to, to Jason's point, how long people watched is important. Uh, some people also will measure uh, interactivity, so how many questions were asked, how many people, and then of course there's following up with people afterwards uh, as to things like, um, you know, would you do this again, or would you rather come into a physical event? And uh, I don't. I'd have to go and I don't know if there's any, um, or I haven't seen that many compilated data you know obviously we have people within the group that have uh you know anecdotal data or data that they sent out to their participants i know that hasmuk uh, had some really good uh success numbers there i think a lot of people are still struggling with virtual events i think we're still in a very early stage where i think a lot of them are still um kind of moving moving forward but um yeah we, we should we should probably look for where we can find them. i'm sure they're documented somewhere i just don't know exactly where um next question Bob Sturtevant in San Antonio is up next. He wonders, has anyone from Office Hours heard about the latest AI called Val-E? And it's V-A-L-L and then dash capital E if you're searching. Copies your voice and speech panelers, panel, patterns Excuse me, after three-second sample. The link has multiple samples of before and after, and he's got a link there to it. Go ahead, John. This is uh, really interesting. These are all guys from Microsoft that wrote this paper. And I, originally, I thought it was a typo because it's close to Dali, right? Right, but uh, it's Valley, and uh, how does it sound, Jason? Well, let me tell you. Okay, it's just uh, no. I don't do a good Valley girl. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, the um, uh, I think it's probably it, it could work to get something, but at three seconds, I you know I don't know. There's a lot of big companies doing spending a lot of money doing this, and maybe these researchers have figured out something that this giant army at Apple and Google and Amazon haven't figured out. Um, that's possible. It's always possible. But three seconds seems like really short to get really high resolution. So it might sound something like you, but I think that like when you look at, we were talking on Mac break yesterday about the, the new AI voices that Apple's putting out to do book reading. You know, so if you're an author uh, right now, you can, um, the problem with books, audiobooks, is that there's a lot of books that are in the long tail, um, you know, that, that they've already been sold and they're not going to get a lot of uh, uh, reads or you're an independent book writer uh, or, or publisher and you can't afford to spend the $5,000 a book or $10,000 a book it costs to have it read. And so there's a um, Apple and others, but Apple was, we were talking about yesterday with, um, have essentially put up an AI version saying you can basically have them just read it for you. <laughs> like It'll just build an audio book and it has a handful of voices. It only has four. 
And those four voices are really good, but it keeps all the intonations, how they're, re it's not just their voice, it's how they're reading, how they typically read sentences. And I think that that is, um, that's the hard part is getting to how are you reading the sentences? Um, and, and I think that we're not, we're not quite there yet. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think it might get the uh, timbre and frequency of your right. voice, but I don't think it'll get the cadence uh, and any idiosyncrasies you have in your delivery. So it'll kind of match the sound, but not the delivery. Yeah, yeah. And that, in some cases, puts you, pushes you even more into some kind of weird, uncanny valley that is not very comfortable to listen to. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. And Laura says, Microsoft's Ability Summit, March 8th. It's free and virtual. Is anyone interested? And she's got a link there. Yeah, we should we should probably see if we can't find at least a, a session or two that we can watch together, maybe in and do kind of a... And so, Laura, we'll, we'll depend on you to take a look at at the schedule and maybe schedule, schedule an after-hours hour to uh, watch one of the sessions and, and talk about it. I mean, I would recommend watching all of it, but maybe a you know, find one, one hour that maybe a lot of us watch together. Uh, next question. Joshua Feingold in New York uh, says, yesterday, several panelists mentioned using a decimator when responding to my question on HDMI cables. How do you use the decimator in your workflow? Good, Courtney. Well, I don't pull it out usually unless I'm using it as a distribution amplifier, unless I'm having problems. This is, you can use it as a converter to go from uh, SDI to HDMI or SDI to SDI, and you can use the SDI input as a distribution amplifier because you've got loop-through outputs and you've got uh, outputs over here that are coming out of the up-down converter. Uh, but it, the neat thing about it is it has this little LCD panel here which tells you what's on each input, both the SDI and the HDMI input, what the frequency and frame rate and what type of signal it is, what the aspect ratio, the you know, the resolution and frame rate is, and whether it's PSF or, you know, all the different varieties of HD you can get. And uh, so it's good for, for debugging and figuring out what the signal coming in is and telling you uh, what you have your signal going out to. So you can set the up-down cross-converter to convert the frame rate going out, and the output frame rate can be set on any of the outputs. So you can set HDMI output to have one frame rate and the input can remain the same on the loop through. So it's it's very handy, a universal tool to have, like a Swiss Army knife for uh, digital signals, video yeah, signals. I was just going to add to that, Courtney's exactly right. Also, though, we tend to use decimator like we use Kleenex. And as a generic term, there are a variety of different decimator mod modules, models that cross-convert different kinds of things to different things. So pay some attention to that. Uh, I don't use decimator as Kleenex. <laughs> like, I definitely use decimator as decimator, like the only one that I have. Um, if you're doing HD, you know, the Ultra HD ones, I think are, I don't know if they're fully the same, but the MDHX, which is the one that most of us have, uh, within Pixel Core, when we were out there, we would put one into everybody's backpack. Like that was, we expected you to all have one because the larger the event, the more of them we had floating around. We hope to not use them. So I don't build... I don't build pipelines around the decimator. So I don't say, well, I'm just going to throw a decimator in and that's part of the build. The, the decimators are something has gone wrong and I need to connect this to this. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, for a long time had many of them. And, you know, if you got to six or seven of them in the pipeline, you knew that there was a design flaw in, in what you had done because you're s suddenly fixing a bunch of things. Um, but they are, um, you know, they still are. The, I don't like the... They made an MD cross, which I never liked because it was easy to get out of 
out of um, a, a place where you couldn't get signals out of it. It was they just had set more settings. It was more complicated. Um, the other thing that's interesting is like Kevin Hansen in, in 090 only knows how to control it with the USB. He plugs the USB in and he configures the 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 decimator. I only know how to use the the buttons on the front, <laughs> so I, I can just sit there and just look at the screen and do the buttons. So there's a cu couple of different ways to configure it. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I've also used a PIX240 as a uh, last-minute uh, fix. Yeah, it's not quite as flexible, but it definitely um, has, especially when you're doing audio, when you want to reroute audio or move audio around, the PIX240 works very well. Um, next question. Uh, Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia. Up next, when setting up Novastar controllers, what happens when setting up the LED panels if not set up as 16 by 9 or other common ratios? If you set up a ratio like 1 to 8, does the requested input resolution ratio change as well? My question with that is that the, that the, um, the Novastar has, I believe, depends on which one you have, but you have either multiple SDIs or a, sing, or a single, I think, HDMI, and I think it's like a 1.4 HDMI, so it's not anything like a 2.1. The, the, um, the, the thing, it should support pretty much every standard resolution coming into it, um, but it is one of those resolutions. I don't think you can dial it in, but it should support, there's, there's probably 12 or 16 resolutions that the, the that the Novastar um, supports on the input. I guess my question is, are you talking about, is it requesting something via the HDMI or is it expecting something via the SDI? Of course, the SDI resolutions are much more uh, constrained than the HDMI resolutions that it can that it can actually look at. So if you're talking about requested, um, it will request, I believe, whatever you've set it to, um, but I'm not 100% certain of that. Um, next question. Uh, Burkhard Frederick in Isterberg, Germany says, setting up a Mac for a blind DJ using algorithms DJ AI first channel, music out to mains, the second channel, voiceover accessibility on through headphones only for the DJ searching the library to cue the next track. How would you set up the signal route for a use like this? I'm good, Jeffrey. So it depends on if you're doing the Mac version or the iPad version, but uh, with the Mac version, uh, for that person, I would probably set up something with uh, with something like a Stream Deck, so he could make the uh, he could have uh, button presses back and forth. But uh, they should uh, the instructions will tell you how to set that all up. Go, ahead, Jason. So um, it, it was it's actually very similar to the way that um, that a sighted person would be doing this. Um, anytime you're DJing, you need at least one preview. So it's the thing that the audience can't um, that you can hear and the audience can't hear. And all you need to do is um, loopback, for example, would do this very easily. Just um, set your output in loopback to mimic whatever the path you choose for your preview. And um, you'll just get it in the headphones and that'll be that. Next question. Alton Christensen in New York City says, is there a beginner level resource for learning to create AI art specifically using the Draw Things app? And he's got a link there. I think that we're all beginners right now. <laughs> I don't know if there's any way. I don't know. I don't know if it's been out long enough for for people to, uh, to to have the ability to teach it yet. So I don't I think that they're all all most of us are doing right now is is opening up and hacking through it. Um, I do think that it would probably be be interesting to get um, the draw things. And John, do you know what the draw is? Draw things just based on the straight yeah. uh, line. Yeah. Uh, yes. So it's it's. I don't think you're going to find that it is um, 
more robust than MidJourney. You know, like, you know, I think that that's, that's the hard part that I'm having right now with a lot of the ones that you can download, um, you know, all the Diffusion AI style uh, versions. If you're going to train it, so if you're going to push a bunch of stuff into it and then get something out, then it works pretty well. If you're actually asking it to just draw an image, um, I find that right now MidJourney is kind of pulling away from everybody else. And that has to do with the fact that they just have so many users. You know, like the, the I think that they they won the user war, you know, of they have so much input coming in. It's so, you know, and, and that's that's a real thing. So I think that right now OpenAI, of course, has ChatGPT and a lot of other things that they're working on. I think that in my opinion, you know, I head to head, I I stopped using Dolly, you know, um, just because it, I wasn't getting the, I don't know if I wasn't prompting it correctly, but I just never got the kind of response, you know, quality. Once once MidJourney switched to version four, um, I felt like it just stepped away from from everything else as far as quality goes. And so I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how all these start to shake out. Again, the ones that sit on your computer are really good if you're training it. If you're training it with your own images, um, I think that the, that's a different uh, model. Go ahead, Jeffrey. One thing to keep in mind is that some of these AIs are not going from the image, but they're taking the text, uh, they're turning it into text and making the image. I'll give you a good example here. I did, uh, I decided to do uh, me as Batman, uh, which looks, this this one looks pretty and, good. And but this was if in you what? This was in mid-journey, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what it does is it it just takes the image and it turns it into text and then creates the uh, creates an image from there. That's why you're not going to look exactly like you would look in the picture. Now, there's some AIs out there that take the picture and uh, and then make the adjustments from there. A lot of them are straying away from that because of the deep fake ability because then they could make something and then try and pass it on as as news, and they just don't want that legal uh, issue in there. So uh, that's the one thing you want to watch out for and how you're planning to use your AI generator. Do you need it to make it look like you, uh, or do you need it to make it? Does it really matter? Next question. Next one comes from Mike Burns in Spokane, Washington. And Mike asks, I was recently asked to digitize mini DV footage for a friend. My current Mac laptops and iMacs won't recognize the FireWire 400 connection from my Sony DSR-11. I finally got it running with an old laptop and running Jaguar. Ouch. Is there an easier way? Go ahead, Mitchell. If you rummage around in the back of your room, you probably have a PCI card that does FireWire 800 and can fall back to 400. So if you pop that in there, you'll find that it'll work and do a great job. Go, Jason. It actually does work. Um, I put a link directly into uh, Makana. The trick is that you need a capture interface that has support for a current version of Mac OS, and you need to be using all Apple adapters. Um, at that point, y- you will be good to go. Good, Bill. What Jason said, I have successfully done that. It required FireWire 400 to 800, 800 to mini display port, mini display port to USB-C, that into a modern laptop, and I was able to capture just fine. And if it's old enough that you're having this problem, I would also think about sending it out to somebody else to digitize it. There's companies that will do that. They may need to rebake the tape. Uh, once you actually... Um, once you actually, I mean, it looks like it worked out for you, but just know that when you have a really old tape, once you run it through once, um, if it if there were issues with the tape, it's over. And and so uh, if you have anything more than about 15 or 20 years old, um, I would recommend ta- sending it to a, a pretty high-end service to have them rebake it and then, and, and then push it out. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. And if you just want to do it on the cheap, you can get uh, things like this that just take uh, – 
RGB or component input if you've got the adapter cable to come out of that camera with uh, an analog signal. And this is a recorder. It will record directly onto a USB 3 uh, and output over HDMI as, as well so you can see what you're getting uh, and do an A to D conversion and capture it for you. So you wouldn't have to involve the Mac and then you just put that, transfer that uh, file to your Mac. Next question. Next one comes from Brody Hafner again, this time uh, in New York City still. During today's second or second hour FAA ground safety system failure, I found accurate, timely reports on local news and the FAA's website. Where would the panelists turn for reliable info on outages affecting a production such as internet, telco, or power? Um, down detectors usually where a lot of us go first. If we think we're having a problem, a lot of us jump on a down detector pretty quickly and and just say, is this going down? Are we seeing things? Um, you know, there's not a lot of great places to um, to see those things. Otherwise, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, it's not really reliable, but um, you can also just use an angry IP scanner. And if you have logs of, you know, the hops that are required for you to get out into the public web, um, you can basically just angrily scan at those pieces to see where in the in the component chain it's it's dead yeah go ahead courtney most uh public utilities uh including uh your cable systems have websites that have outage uh, maps and shows you what areas they're experiencing outages at uh and they're usually kept pretty well up to date with uh with information on when they expect to have uh, whatever service it is that's out restored yeah, usually they're about 20 minutes, 10, 20 minutes behind, you know, for, for the reporting. And uh, so if you're trying to find something that's acute, you may not be able to see it there. But the again, what I'm worried about usually is a national outage of something or a regional outage of something that may not be one of those things like Internet. Like we've had ones where we had we had an event where the East YouTube lost the East Coast. <laughs> so nobody on the East Coast could see a live stream. Um, but the West Coast was fine and the rest of the world was fine. It was just like a, a corridor um, that I believe ended up being um, someone cut a fiber, you know, a fiber line that caused a cascading failure. I mean, this is probably almost uh, six or seven years ago. I mean, I don't think anything's happened with YouTube since then. But um, but it was it was an, it was a unique thing. But down detector showed us a nice cloud that showed us exactly what it what it what it looked like. Go ahead, Jeff. So if you have a uh, power outage, good idea to contact your power company and notify them. And this is a crowdsource thing. They can very quickly get a map of where who has outages, and uh, that helps them troubleshoot the problem. It actually will in decrease the time it takes to repair something and get the power online. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Yesterday, David Paskin did a second hour on Canva and or Keynote. When is the workshop? What was your takeaway from David's presentation yesterday? And what do you want to know next? Go ahead, Mitchell. I thought it was a great uh, presentation. I think it was a little bit of a blending of a lab and asking and take, talking about the uh, the product and answering a lot of questions. So it was an interesting uh, get-together. Um, also, just as a reminder, there's a note here that says that uh, today at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, he has a lab, and then you can see the whole Monty. All right, go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, exactly. I found it was fascinating. Uh, it, I, it gave me a clear understanding of where Canva fits into the universe of graphics things, and it surprised me in that I've seen so many websites designed with what looked to be those Canva templates. I wondered why there was so much similarity in different companies uh, approaching their web designs in the same general fashion, and now I know what it is. A lot of people are using Canva and their templates to do simple work, and sending it out on the web looks decent. 
Yeah, it should be great. Um, hopefully people will be able to stop by. I think uh, David's an incredible teacher, so it'll be really great to have him um, doing the lab this afternoon or this morning, uh, depending where you are, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Next question. Lewis Herzog in Mainz, Germany is up next. We talked about glitches in OBS Studio 28 a few weeks back. Now that OBS 29 is available, have panelists using OBS upgraded to 28, or are you staying with 27 for now? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. I'm not sure what glitches you found. I did have, I did find a glitch in 28 that I had problems streaming out to certain uh, things. But the biggest update for uh, 29 is the support for AV1 encoder for the RX 7000 series GPUs. Uh, and, uh, and so, it, but there were uh, several bug fixes. So, uh, and, and of course, this is all on Windows rather than Mac. So if you're trying to, if you're doing this on Mac, I don't, I'm not sure what fixes uh, came on. I, I'm still staying way away from the Mac OBS as possible. I go ahead, John. So uh, I had problems with 28 on my Mac. It, it would take my CPU to 100% after about 15 minutes of operation. I just downloaded 29. I run 28 on my PC. I Jonas and I did, did a test on it, ran two weeks straight with no problems with very little CPU. So if you can run OBS, run it on a, run it on a PC. Uh, next question comes from Alex Lindsay of Nevada, California. Have the panelists picked up any new toys? I'm always curious. Like we're always like, I feel like every couple of weeks we should just see like, what, what do people got that they enjoy? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. It's not terribly exciting. It's a iMac, uh, iPad Pro. I got the, the oldest one that'll use the Apple Pencil 2. So I think it's the third gen. But uh, it's been fabulous. I'm mainly using it for marking up uh, orchestra scores, nice. both for uh, both for producing and for running live streams. So I'll be looking at those as I'm cutting. And what are you using for the uh, markup? Apple Pencil, and I use a, the popular score app is a thing called Fourscore, but I'm actually using uh, one of its competitors called PS Score. Mm -hmm. So I'm so just marking just, right on PDF scores. Pencil, you just, and just draw right out, and, and does it and it just does it save those as like a separate layer over top, or does it just mark it? It just marks it. You can export the PDF uh, blank or with your markups. Nice, uh, Jeffrey. So I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I got the uh, Insta 360 RS one inch, and I got it for CES. Um, but uh, last week is when I really got to use it, and it's just been amazing. Uh, and uh, I've been putting out videos because uh, with the DJI Pocket, which was great in in covering some of the shows, you still had to move the joystick, and I always had these little jumps and bumps. But with the uh, 360. I turned that into a, because all my videos are going in HD mode, and uh, I turned that into its own little PTZ, and I've got about th three, four videos up already. They're just amazing what you can do with those uh, with those one-inch sensors, and it looks uh, relatively good. Uh, there's, there's some zoom-in problems, but uh, other than that, it's just been a, a pretty great, and I, I'm hoping that we're going to have a second hour to talk about our CES uh, uh, follies in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm sorry to say I was not able to pick up any new toys. I'm suffering from that Neapolitan disease, Mafunzalo. <laughs> there we go, uh, Marty. I picked up a Wacom One tablet to uh, you know do markups. Um, uh -huh. 
And I'm, I'm playing with uh, Microsoft Whiteboard, some of the free apps uh, that I have to see if they'll work. The pen only has one button, though, so it's uh, I need to find something that's giving me a little bit more flexibility. But it's, it's very cool so far. I'm still still figuring it out. Yeah, that's what I use for my my, my uh, uh, Telestrator is is the Wacom one, which is, of course, the Intuos will have a couple more buttons on them. Um, you know that you can that you can use. I just didn't need that for what I was doing. Now, Jason sent me these. These are the, those the little rack mounts here. Um, now, Jason, the one thing that I was wondering about is what would really make these cool. Do they make a version of them that go into the server racks that just have the squares? Because it feels like meaning a single instead of two pieces. Well, no, no. Well, that, but but also a sing, uh, this doesn't look like it looks like if I what I realized would be cool because I, I went to use this on the rack yesterday and I have a server rack that you have to put the inserts into. You have to insert the the mounts, um, you know, into them. And I realized if if there's a version of this that would that was designed for those squares as opposed to going through the a rack mount. So the rack mount normally has the ten, you know, the um, uh, the, you know, it, it normally inserts in, I think it's whatever, 1032 or whatever that's there, um, that that's what this, this looks like it's designed to go through, right? It slides through those, through the right, already through the square back. mounts. Yeah. I'd be curious to know if this, if there's a version of this that goes into the square mounts directly, because that would be kind of magical. So that if it, if you could push it through where you didn't have to use the, the inserts, does that um, make sense? I believe there is, um, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, yeah, the first generation of them, instead of having to go around from the back, um, it was a separate modular piece. So it right. would go in and each individual post would click in and then you would lock it with a little yellow piece of plastic and then it, right. and then it tightens down. So uh, short answer is yes. For an existing one that has the, the, the standard mounts that are going down the side, I think this is perfect. And then for server ones, that's what I was thinking it would be really good to have. Also, Jason sent me the, these, these cables, but I don't know what to hook them to. Like what, what um, do I, what Those do I go to your to? IEMs. But but which ones? Which IEMs? They don't, I don't think they, they I'm match. I'm pretty the ones sure they're sure. Um, I'm sure. It could be wrong. They're, they're very nice. It's very nice. Braided, don't they feel they good braided? though? They're braided. Are they braided? Cable. It's really thick braided it's cable. It's like braided. The thickest braided um, cable ever. Like it's. I've, and then I had a I, basin, IEMs you have two the, different. IEMs ah. have two different type of connections. One's a, a dual pin, and the other one is yeah. is like this a, is a cam. single pin. Yeah, Jason, uh, you got to put the link there. Got to have it. Last thing is, Jason, what are these? I don't okay, so that is a clamp. Um, I think I put a QR code on the outside of the box, but basically that is designed to be a clamp um, uh, that allows you to, to basically clamp things like, um, you know, interesting <laughs> shapes for... Jason did put something on it that says, Alex, yeah, says, what is this? And then, Alex, and then what there's is a this? QR code. <laughs> so there we go. Okay. There you I'll go. look at the QR code. I'll look at the QR code. Uh, also, um, these little... Uh, um, found this on Amazon, which are, these are cases for the Insta360 links. Um, so these are Ooh. little soft cases and there's just enough room for, uh, the cable and the, um, uh, and the, and the camera, which is nicer than just putting them back in their, the box that they shipped in every single time. Um, it's funny, the first one that came that I got has a huge logo on the outside and these ones don't, which I guess they figured out people don't like that. Um, the, uh, I also got... I have decided to start um, moving away from mic. Um, the mic threading drives me absolutely crazy. Like I just hate it, um, you know, because it's just, it's, it, it can be, you can 
you can um, strip the threads really easy because they're too, they're, they're not. So I'm starting to get these little inserts that I'm just starting to put into everything, which are three quarter or three eighths inserts. I'm just starting to put them into all of my receivers so that I can just just use three eighths, call it a day. And so, um, so I, I'm testing them right now. And these, these ones aren't quite as deep as I'd like them to be, but um, but I'm starting to just just kind of standardize on three eighths. The last thing is is when you start moving your your uh, um, your Mac Studio around a lot. Uh, you, you, they do make cases. <laughs> just in case you're wondering, whoops, I just uh, cut to something else. Um, anyway, but these these are cases that um, you can see that you can put your Mac your Mac Studio in, which has become my new laptop because I can't. I don't have a. La I'm not going to invest in a laptop because I don't go out enough. But I go on Fridays. I go into the office and I started scratching my scratching up my studio. And I was like, I bet you there's a case for that. So cases have been the big thing for me this week. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills is up next from San Francisco Bay Area. Could we invite Kevin Hansen from the 090 Media Group to office hours? I'd love to hear about how he thinks about building out a system or a show. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to Kevin about it. He's, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that he'd be able to. He, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know how much he likes to do like presentations, but, uh, but I, but I'll see if we can get Kevin on to talk about, uh, do Q and A about what some of the things that he works on and how he approaches things. So yeah, absolutely. Next question. John Frailer in Greenfield, Massachusetts is up with this. All American flights were grounded for the first time since nine 11 this morning because of software issues, thoughts on the vulnerability of all encompassing systems that large institutions favor over distributed systems. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I looked at the cause of this. Uh, their NOTAM system, which is the notice to all air missions, uh, which they broadcast to all all planes in flight about hazards in the area. And, of course, when that went down, it caused a cascading IT issue, is what the FAA said. And so apparently all of these systems are interconnected. Uh, they do have backup systems, but when one goes down and the backup system fails it can create a cascade, and that's a dangerous situation to have. And a lot of the stuff that air traffic control is running on is pretty outdated. Uh, old systems back, you know, from the 80s or so. And so they all need to be updated, but the problem is you can't just update one part of them because you have to overhaul the whole system, and you can't take it offline because you'd have to ground all the flights across America. So you have to set up a dual system in parallel, get it sure it's all working, feed all the data into the new system for several months to make sure it's handling everything correctly, and then pick one inopportune moment to switch over to the new system. And of course, then you got to move backups online and everything else. It is quite a complex problem when our air travel and in many other infrastructure, uh, com you know, computer run infrastructure things are, are so, uh, we're so dependent on them. Uh, when the computers go down or the communications goes down between the commuters, uh, it can be for a big disaster. Go ahead, Bill, real quick. Yeah, I'd hope that maybe they would take a lesson from the Y2K problems where they had to screamingly look for like COBOL programmers because they were trying to rewrite code that was ancient and it started at the dawn of the computer era. This is going to be, I think, a consistent problem going up. So I'm hoping they're making plans for exactly what Courtney was talking about, doing the hard work of shutting down critical systems and compartmentalizing so they can fix it. It's a big infrastructure issue. Yeah, and, and I think that the part of the, from what I saw this morning, part of it is they don't know why. They don't know why it went down, and and so when they don't know why, they don't know if it's an attack or or if it's a um or if it's a uh, something that just broke. And so if they don't know why, they're going to shut everything down because they don't understand 
you know, what the, what the threat um, may be related to that process. And so, um, so I think that that was also part of the deal is they just didn't understand. I don't think it was obvious to them um, what, what happened. And so that, that caused a lot of consternation and, um, and uh, they'll, in, in general, what I would say is a central and central thing is efficient most of the time, you know, and it probably outweighs a couple of days of it, of us trying to figure it out. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I do think it's going to take probably another decade for them to modernize because of all the issues that were just outlined. Next question. Mike Burns in Spokane, Washington said, speaking of mini DV formats, both my Sony and JVC mini DV decks need servicing. Where is a good place to send them to be serviced? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I would send them out as fast as you humanly can. I look online for uh, people who do classic repairs. I'm hoping you can find it. And the problem is the mechanical pro parts of old videotape things, helical scan heads, the belts, the pinch rollers, all those things have been out of manufacture for a long time. So you're looking for people who either know how to fabricate those or have stocks of old parts. I find this more and more and more. That mic that's behind me, the old Sure uh, SM5B, I was looking for a foam windscreen for that for 15 years. I finally found a small batch guy who did them, but it's just really hard to get parts for older stuff as they age out. Fix them as fast as you can. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I find the best place to send them is the bottom of the nearest ocean or lake. <laughs> uh, because the people, like like Bill said, you know, I remember I had DAT machines, which were expensive, you know, professional time code DAT machines, which cost, you know, five to $6,000. And uh, Fostex made them. And there was only one company that made the transports. And when that company stopped making the transports, those transports were like little watch, you know, little watches inside there that, transport that little tiny tape and many dv is exactly almost the same transport so finding replacements for them or people that even know how to work on them is almost impossible these days just give up the ghost and deep six it. there is a guy um that is uh in san jose and i'll, I'll try to find it from marty and we'll try to put it somewhere uh, I mean, um there's one person in san jose that we know of that fixes like pbws and all these high-end stuff and, and anything that's semi-professional or above and he may still he may be interested in he may still do these as well and people like me you know we grab on to pbws and we just donate them to him so we just give him give him these these things so that someday if we ever needed it he'd have the parts so lots of people give them parts from these professional decks and then he has this big pile and he slowly puts them back together and um, you can, you know, he's, he, he, I think it's, he's a retired, you know, electrical engineer that has been putting these together as, as I remember it, it's been a couple of years, um, but we needed to find one. And there was like the guy, the one guy in, in San Jose that did it. He may not hopefully still here. Um, and, you know, um, but uh, well, I'll, I'll see if I can find the contact for him. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. I've got a PVW right behind me that would love to find a new home. Uh, there we go. Okay. Um, next question. John Frailer is back again from Greenfield, Massachusetts. What tools and apps are best for created, creating animated photo slideshows to display on TVs at small events? Go ahead, Jason. Take a look at posterbooking.com. Um, this is an amazing um, and, and incredibly inexpensive way to do digital signage. Um, it can work with a tiny little Kindle stick. And um, it, the smaller plans are, are practically free. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we I, we did use this for a for a presentation a little while ago, and there's a handful of them, and and a lot of them are, you've got stuff coming in, and the question is, is where are you getting the images from? Are you getting them from a? Are, do you already have them, and you're just simply pushing them up, 
or are you managing them? So managing them coming in from Instagram or Twitter or something is an online tool typically, whereas managing a, um, a collection is oftentimes a little bit easier. Um, you can use anything from photos to many, many things that come with the computers. But if you're going to actually manage stuff that's flowing in where you have to curate them and then push them to a, to a wall, um, there is probably a second hour there of talking about what the options are there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you could do, as Alex always suggests, is animate them in Keynote and export it to a uh, MOV file and then just get you a media player that will loop that MOV file over and over again and hook that up to your digital signage. Uh, we'll give you a nice animated slideshow or whatever you want need to do with it. Uh, I mean, so that's if you're looking, solution. <laughs> if you're looking for the, the, you know, the best is one side. The cheapest way to do it is literally there are screensavers on the Mac that you don't even need to animate anything in Keynote. Literally, there's screensavers that will, there's like five or six different screensavers that just, you give it a folder in your photos and it'll just start animating them. It'll do boxes, it'll fly through them, it'll do, it'll, if you were just trying to do something, um, you could probably put that up there and let it run and it would probably record it or just, you know, and in, in with that one, you could probably keep on changing the folders, keep on changing what's in the folders, and it would just keep updating the, the images. So, but there, um, there are uh, media players out there that are designed specifically for this. There's a company called BrightSign that has yeah. them, that will loop your media, and it will also interface us to the internet, so you can, on the fly, download new playback uh, over uh, Wi-Fi to yeah. the individual players. Absolutely. Next question. Alan Cavito in Melothian, Virginia says, and speaking of the PIX 240i, is it worth buying one used today at around $4,000 US plus? Are they so far out of date as to, are they too far out of date to be useful? Good, Mitchell. Uh, this is my PIX 240, and uh, it's a slightly older one. It's the 240, not the 240i. And I'm shocked to see that uh, you can, that somebody wants to pay 4000 plus for one of these guys. I find it very, very useful. And unfortunately, uh, Office Hours policy does not allow us to sell equipment uh, used here. But <laughs> clean out your studio and send it all to Alex or someone like him. Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. The caddies that interface to the SSD drives are getting hard to find, I think. And that may be one of your weak points if you're going to try and use it as a recorder. Although uh, Mitch and several other people, Alex, use it as an audio interface. It still works great for or as a, uh, um, an interface that up-down converter or cross-converter, it also works there, too, because it's got a frame synchronizer built into it. And it's got SDI to HDMI conversion built into it. Yeah, I don't know if I pay four thousand dollars for it. If you have them, don't get rid of them. <laughs> that's, that's what I would say. Uh, but if, at four thousand dollars, I am looking. I, I had. I have to admit, I might keep one. I have got a couple of them, and um, and I it makes it very tempting. If I thought I could get four thousand dollars for them, I could probably buy something else and keep one for as a museum piece. Um, and uh, but but uh, probably a museum piece that I'm still using. As long as it's that. 1080, you're okay because I use it. I take it to clients to show them stuff. Yeah. Or I'll use it to stage a uh, a presentation. So I say hold on to one if you can get one. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't buy one for four thousand. There's probably a lot of other things you can use. Uh, next question. Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenald, Germany says the Axun Simo brings a live HDMI signal into the iPad. Is there a solution to use that for a Telestrator app? The video pencil app uses NDI for the live input, which causes a bit of latency. Yeah, I, I don't think that um, uh, I don't think that it has a Telestrator. Oh, I will because I think that you still have to use their app. I just got it; it's sitting in a box behind me. It's another thing that, that we can talk about at some point. But 
Um, I just got one um, to test the, um, but I don't know. I think that it's not just sending in a signal to any app. I don't think it makes it available within the OS. I think it makes it available within the app that they have there so that you can preview it. Um, so they have control. I will say that if they, if they figured out a way to have video out, you know, with their adapter, as well as a telestrator, that'd be super interesting, you know, um, as far as what, what they can do there. But, um, right now it doesn't look like, um, you, they'd have to build it into their app to be able to see it. I believe next question. Next one comes from Hasmuk Ajar in Cape Town, South Africa. Hasmuk says, I have a MixPre 6.2. I need another mixer. Thinking of the MixPre 10 or the Allen & Heath SQ5. Are these over the top if I need another MixPre 6.2? And he notes, I know the question may irk someone, but I'll ask anyway. I think that as soon as you start saying, I need a bigger mixer. So as a field mixer, I think that the MixPre 10 makes a lot of sense as a... Um, if I if I started wanting to go, I want to go to a bigger mixer. I'd start really thinking hard about an X thirty two. Like just just get an, a a real mixer um, that that is going to. I mean, the mixes mix pre's are real mixers, but they're field recorders, and we're using them in a way that they're not really designed, but they work really well. Um, and but I think that if you say I need something that I'm going to expand into, the X thirty two is the next step up. Where suddenly you have just a lot of I.O., you know, and you have Dante and you have all the things that you may want down the road. So um, I think that that I think that the I don't know if it's the only one, but I think that it's one of the least expensive ways, even though it's eighteen hundred dollars with the card. It's one of the least expensive ways to have a mixer interacting with uh, at least a hardware mixer interacting with Dante. Um, so uh, so I think that that I would really, you know, think about that. And if you still need the noise reduction, um, I would just use it with uh you can use it on the output and run it through the MixPre, um, you know, to, to to get into your into your thing. But uh, uh, but I, I think I would I would probably think of a bigger one at that point. Um, next question, Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Up next, what were Jeffrey Powers' favorites at CES? I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. I think he just threw a football at me. So uh, I think I think he's talking about this gun right here. It was in the first day of CES, and uh, we were we were, met this guy who had who built uh, his building bionic limbs, uh, and we had Dan Saint Pierre here. And there's guy uh, that uh, and they took this piece of wood and they they decided to do a little test on the strength of this uh, of this arm here right there. So that was one of them. But uh, the one thing I, believe it or not, the one thing I really geeked out about was uh, at, uh, I think it was Showstoppers, there was this, and I'm, I'm pulling it up as I go, there's this uh, company called Meta, Meta, uh, Meta Materials, that's it, Meta Materials. And they have, they started by talking about this microwave. And the microwave, as you notice, has a clear glass to it. Now, most microwaves don't have clear glass to it because you have to have something to keep the radiation from coming out. But they, they developed this glass that allows for a clear uh, see-through on the microwave. And you think that that would, you know, I'm geeking out over something really weird, but the reality is the same glass, they have a little display over here, this same glass is can also be used for windows. You apply a little bit of electricity to it, and it actually heats up, so it keeps your house warm. Now you think that I'd be, I wouldn't be geeking out about that, but then he 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 just kept doing the Steve Jobs and goes, but there's more. And the biggest thing is in front of this. Well, the in front of this is the flur that's showing the heat. But what this also will do is it will amplify 5G signal. 
So if you have this glass around your house, whether uh, through windows, whether through uh, uh, you know a mirror or a uh, or a picture frame or something like that, it can be bouncing signal around your around wherever you are to get a better signal uh, in, uh, remotely. And that was what was the real geek out about this glass. It just does so much, and it's from Meta Materials, and they've been they've been working on stuff like this for years. This this glass has been in production for at least four years. So, and they're hoping to get it in microwaves next year which means you might be able to start uh, building your house. You know, we were looking at the, uh, at the West Hall, and that's all glass right there. That could become a big 5G uh, receptor uh, simply by using their glass. Where I live, most people are trying to block the signals, <laughs> then, then, then amplify them. Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, John. My favorite part was staying at home and watching everything online, but hanging out with Jeffrey, Keenan, uh, Guy Cochran, Victor, yeah, and uh, Bo, Bo Cordell showed up and we all had a beer together. It was great. That's awesome. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. His question, the Excel Energy Center got a new PA, a Meyer unit, and one design factor was staying clear of touring rock show PAs. In other words, if a network of arenas or stadiums had similar PAs, could said rock shows conceivably tour with only Mike's the consoles and their backline to those venues and avoid having to bring along their PAs. It'd be possible. Um, it's hard. Uh, you know, there's, um, they're really, they really build that whole system knowing what it's going to do and where they have full control over it. And, the, and they're not just like grabbing some speakers. They're uh, oftentimes at a, at a site like uh, rock um, in, 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 um, in, in Pennsylvania, and they have huge stages there, and those stages are where they figure out where all the you know what 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 are the arrays going to look like, and and where they're going to put them, and how are they going to impact the the space, and what is going to look like, and they're designed around the visuals, around the lighting, around everything else that's going on. So it would be it's not impossible. It would be difficult for a touring band to do that now to bring in artists to play at a, at a location that happens all the time. You know, the amplification built into a bar or built into a location can, uh, a lot of these systems are built for that so that smaller bands can come in and not have to do their own amplification. And so that's not, that's not out of the question, but to standardize it would be, you know, would be a thing, you know, and I think that, but I do think that standardized venues is probably not, we'll probably see more of that this, this decade. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Next one comes to us from Brett Ballou in Appleton, Wisconsin. And Brett says, any office hours discussion of improving voice audio quality usually points back to proper mic technique. Any good resources or tips from learning this and training the voice for a richer tone? Maybe Radio Voices 101 after hours class with Mitchell or Bill. Good, Mitchell. Well, Brett, funny you should ask this. Uh, we're doing another workshop today at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, five central, et cetera. And uh, we generally talk about these things, uh, how to get good mic technique, how to work the mic to get that inner world voice. And uh, you would get both Bill and I, uh, very likely. Um, I think Bill will be showing up today, maybe even Alex. So it's a good place to be. And today's subject is that we will do some uh, adjustments on people that are reading. We're going to actually put questions in there and give everybody a chance to get a, a review and some tips on how you sound. So to answer your question, uh, we can't promise you a richer voice when you leave the, uh, the workshop, but we'll put you on the road to one. Next question. 
Next one comes from John Freyer again in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, after watching the second hour on Canva yesterday, I'm curious if anyone on the panel has used Adobe Express, formerly known by a few names, including Spark. I haven't seen anybody. I haven't seen it used in the wild, so I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, I've I've heard about it. It's kind of like uh, Adobe also has Rush, which is kind of like a mobile editing tool that they put out that they really worked hard at promoting. But I haven't seen actually anybody uh, have have. I've never seen those get any traction. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I played with it, but it was uh, it it's just very limiting, especially if you got a full fledged uh, program to uh, to. Do what you need to do otherwise but uh uh basic edits but uh, yeah i haven't played with it and gosh a little i think it was called spark at the time yeah it's it's been it's it's really hard to develop these from the ground up you know because you know you have a, a, a certain uh approach to however it happened and if you try to just do it as an engineering team and not a person that wants to be like I, we were talking yesterday on mac break about the fact that you know keynote is 20 years old and what drove keynote for a long time was the fact that Steve Jobs used it for his shows and he had what he wanted, <laughs> you know, like that's what he wanted. To, and so it had a very clear vision, um, you know, in that process where if you just have a, a bunch of people design one from a committee, it's hard. It's hard to get just what you need. And you have to have, you can't design a presentation tool with engineers. You have to design it with presenters. You know, the presenters will tell you what they want to do and the engineering team needs to you know, do whatever they're asking for, as opposed to the other way around. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do in an engineer, in a software company. Next question. Carl Markser in New York says general, uh, is a CTS certified technology specialist certification necessary to work in the AV industry? Is it worth getting? Is anyone on the panel CTS certified? Good bill. Certifications have always been a kind of an odd thing in the electronic industry. In some cases, they are valuable. But what, here's what I've found. For me personally, going through and getting a certification, and I hold three or four in the video area, has been a structured uh, curriculum for me to learn the breadth of a subject. And I find them very valuable to me in terms of, uh, particularly, I got certified in Final Cut, and it sent me to areas that I wouldn't normally see in my practice because of the kind of edits I do. So it made me a broader, more comprehensive uh, user of that product. But no one has ever asked me in my entire career after all these years, am I certified in something to hire me? I think hiring decisions are made generally on other things. Go, Jason. Yeah, pretty much. Learning stuff is great. The pieces of paper that you get as the result are not. Uh, to put it in perspective, I've worked in and out of this industry for 30 years. Until you asked this question, I didn't even know what CTS – I didn't know that CTS certified existed. So, so like, if that helps you decide how important it is, then go ahead, Marty. Yeah, these were – these certifications were designed uh, in response to finding a way to qualify – people to do these jobs and if you're if you're looking to get hired by an integrator to do installations or to do projects or to even do um, uh, event uh, production if you're being hired by a company they will want to qualify your skills and having these certifications is one way of of qualifying you because you've You've done the work, you've put the hours in, you've taken the tests, and you've proven yourself in a standardized fashion. Um, as a freelancer, you know, taking the education courses are always valuable, uh, but not required. Yeah. What we found within the school, in some of the schooling, some of the education that we've done, because 
I only care about employability. So I, when I'm, when I build training, I'm, I don't care about certification. I don't care about anything else. I just want to make, push people out that can do the, do the stuff, <laughs> you know? So, so most of my training is really built around that. And what we found in our own work was that people who were good at taking tests and people who were good at following the instructions within the training were not necessarily good at production. <laughs> so, so that, you know, so they, they're the, the structured way that they approached all of the training did not actually line up with someone in live production that can make quick decisions about how to manage something. And those two personalities didn't line up. So we stopped doing it because we were like, well, that's not working. I mean, literally, we were filling a school with people who had to first go through this certification process to know whether they were doing it. And, and the folks that were coming in were not able to do the, the, the actual work. And so, so we moved away from that a couple, maybe five or six years ago. Um, it, was a, it was an experiment that went horribly wrong. Um, and the, um, so I think that what we really focus on is what we, where we started, which is give people an opportunity to work on things. I mean, that's we, what we do here. That's what we did in Pixel Core is build lots of teams, give people, anybody the ability to step up and and um, train themselves by actually doing things as opposed to doing that. And then we get to see what they're like um, and we get to, you know, have them learn over time um, in a less costly way. Um, but I think that that, you know, having people work on stuff, the way I hire everybody is, you know, p through either people I know or people or through here, <laughs> you know, this is about, you know, 60%. Um, and, uh, and then also through, uh, you know, we put people in roles that aren't mission critical at first to see how they, how they act and, and what, what they know. And then we keep on moving them up in, in responsibility. Um, so those are generally the way that I think a lot of people um, find uh, people to work with. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, Bentley University has added living in the metaverse to their core undergraduate curriculum. Does this need to be taught in college classes outside our industry? And he's got a URL link there. Go ahead, Courtney. No, maybe dying in the metaverse because, or how to declare bankruptcy in the metaverse, you know, maybe that would be important because I don't see the metaverse. This is my opinion. I don't see the metaverse lasting very long. <laughs> Go ahead, Jesse. Um, I, I feel like the metaverse also includes our digital presence uh, entirely across the internet through all social media platforms. And one of the most concerning things about society to me right now is uh, illiteracy regarding your presence in the metaverse. I, I don't just uh, lock metaverse into the 3D virtual reality goggles that's being developed by uh, meta right now. So I think I think this is the most important thing to be teaching, and and I think it should be expanded greatly at at all academic levels. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I totally agree on that. You know, in Minecraft, you have Minecraft millionaires. You have people that are doing business and they're they're selling their their digital assets in Minecraft. And of course, Metaverse is just one step, uh, just better better quality of the of what you'd have in Minecraft. So I would guess that anything that you learn there can basically be rinse and repeat from there so uh and and of course any way to get uh to get free credits uh for an easy class i'd be taking those <laughs> yeah the i think that um living in the metaverse is pretty is pretty uh is, is a stretch but i think that understanding what might be possible um, there's going to be something where we're you know we're already we've figured out something here in office hours that nobody else has really done as well um it's and how to connect but we've the things that we've done are a little different, which is that we've very much stayed as close to analog as possible. We don't have virtual backgrounds. We don't have, you know, there's a lot of things that we try to keep as as real and, and earnest as possible. 
And I think that that's what's missing right now. Is, and we're doing that not because it'll never get there. It's because we know that it's not there yet. <laughs> you know, And so we're figuring out the community part of this while everyone else is figuring out the graphics part of it. But I, I don't think it'll never be there, but I think it's still pretty far away. Um, next question. Tyler Roberts in Chambersburg says, has anyone had issues with the Insta360 link losing the frame shot while in Zoom? I'll be framed up, then go to a breakout and come back to the main room and have to hit the preset again to reframe. Is anybody been able to figure out how to keep the same framing? No. <laughs> like I can tell you that we haven't figured it out. This, this, this is a, we believe that this is a, some kind of UVC call and we, we see it happen with everything from Mimo Live to OBS to, um, uh, to Zoom. When a new request comes in, um, it appears that the UVC is not, is, is we believe is asking for, give me the highest resolution. And when it does that, the camera pulls back. Um, and so we've seen this happen with the, the, the Brios, with the Insta360. The big advantage of the link is that we have a preset that allows us to go right back to where we were. Um, once we're in it, once we're getting live feeds, um, it, it appears to be fine. Um, but it is, it's problematic. And, and we even see it like with Memo, if we turn a, samp, a, a signal off and then turn it back on again, um, even in, the, in, our, in our list, we can see that reset again. So, so it is, it's a, it's a little bit problematic and, and it has to do with the fact that like, if you're, if you're managing that camera and your Insta360 controller is opened and you're in that camera, it shouldn't do it because that resolution has been requested and that position has been requested by the, by the controller. If you have multiple cameras, what we find is that if you're not on that one, you're not making constant requests of it and you ask for a different one, that, that one will re want to reset. And so that's what we've been slowly trying to figure out what those, those um, patterns are within that reset. But it, it is a problem for a bunch of us, um, but we haven't solved it other than we're for figuring out workarounds, which is to make sure that something is requesting that camera all the time. Um, it's, it's when it's being requested anew um, at full resolution. So like, for instance, you'll see it oftentimes in Zoom. The worst part of Zoom is when it requests you're in a you're in a um, a view here. You might be in in the in the gallery view, and when it requests full resolution for the full sized uh, uh, view portrait view, you're going or speaker view. You're going to suddenly it'll pop wide open, and that's super embarrassing for people who have zoomed in. There's part of their office or home that they don't want to show, and suddenly it shows it when it goes full res. We don't see that here, and one of the reasons we don't see it, well, partially because we have a lot of cameras, but the other reason we don't see it here is because um, Zoom ISO is requesting the full resolution all the time. Because we're because of the way the show works, Zoom ISO is al already pulling it, and, um, and so it, it never has the opportunity to pop up again. Um, next question. Tyler Roberts. In, oh, I'm sorry. That's the one we just did. Uh, here we go. Douglas Carmichael. A company called Do Not Pay is working with a speeding defendant on representing, and he has that in quotes, representing them in Zoom court. What does the panel think, and how would they route a synthetic voice to Zoom on Windows? And he's got a link there. It's a Gizmodo article. Good, good, good Bill. Why, why did something pop open in my brain and go, danger, Will Robinson? I don't know why, but as I read this, I thought somebody is trying to get money out of people. <laughs> think that there's not going to be any problem with a Zoom chat GPT divin bot showing up in court. What could go wrong? I think it's great. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I mean, for years, lawyers have been working off of boilerplate responses in a lot of their cases anyway. But in response to your actual question, yeah, if you just open up the... Uh, in Windows 11, I might point out, and not in earlier versions, uh, the volume mixer, you have the ability to control 
the level going to all apps. So you just find out whatever apps is generating your uh, your volume for your uh, artificial intelligent uh, lawyer, and you bring up the level over here for that app feeding uh, into your uh, USB feed to the Zoom call. I, I just think it's, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, it is. It's an interesting. Worms. No, it's an interesting problem because you know the big the big game is typically uh, if a police officer doesn't show up. I know because I got a lot of tickets when I was a kid. Um, if a police officer doesn't show up for the for the court case, then you get usually you get out of it. And so um, the the game is just to show up, you know. And so this is allowing you to show up relatively usefully and play chicken with whether the police officer is working or not. So anyway, it's a funny it's a funny thing. Uh, I find that to be humorous. I wouldn't do it. I think that's. I think that, as Bill said, there's a whole bunch of horrible things that could go wrong, but uh, but it is pretty uh, pretty funny. All right, next question, or not not next question, but we're changing subjects. Uh, we are moving to mixers. Um, this is, you know, really the mixer is the core thing. I will argue that audio, especially in our events, is probably sixty to eighty percent of the show. Uh, you could have almost no no video, and even though we spend a lot of work on our video, you could have very little video, and people would still you know, enjoy the show and listen to it. When I'm not on the show, I listen to it. Uh, but if the audio goes bad, like, it's pretty hard to pretty hard to manage. And so the mixer becomes the central piece of of what we're talking about. And so we thought it'd be useful to kind of walk through and I really understand how these mixers work. And Jeff Francis has been kind enough to uh, volunteer his his time to um, to show us a little bit about how mixers work. Jeff, I'm going to hand it off to you. Thanks. I'm not alone in this. I know Marty is going to chime in here. And uh, we're, this is part one of in-depth look into mixers. So this is the the fundamentals, the basics of it. But there will be other weeks later on that, that take this further and hopefully uh, later on actually implementing in a live uh, situation with Marty's got an event space for that. Um, but mixers are mixers are mixers. So they're taking audio in and, and mix means to add together to some signals together to create a new signal. Um, so I'm going to take a really small example. Um, and so if we had a, a drum kit with four mics on it, two overheads, a kick and a snare, and we had a bass guitar player and a guitar player and a lead vocal and a background vocal. That's eight tracks. And those are all going to go through what we're going to call a channel strip or a module. And we're going to look through the basic building blocks of that channel strip here in a second. Um, we're going to receive each signal. We're going to process it. And each of those is completely independent until we get to the summing bus, the mix bus. And that's where things actually get combined together. So what do we have in a channel strip for one of those signals. I'm doing eight, you could have 64, you could have two. All of those get mixed together to a final output. We're gonna have an input section, we're gonna have processing, and then we're gonna have routing. What's in the input section? That's where we take in signals and we adjust them to work in our mixer. If they're microphones, we're gonna provide gain, we're gonna provide phantom power. Um, if they're line level signals, we're going to receive that. If they're digital signals, we're going to receive that. This is bringing signals into the input of one channel strip. Again, these are still one signal, one mono signal. And we have many, 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 many of these. Those are the modules of the mixer. Um, nice things to have here might be a high pass filter, probably a meter, polarity, reverse, all of those kind of things. Then we move into processing. What's in the processing? Well, those are typical things that we have. So we'll have 
Most consoles will have EQ. Most digital consoles will have some kind of a dynamics processing. We may have an insert point where we can put something else into the console itself. So we could put an external piece of gear in there. From the processing, we go into the routing section. That's the last part of the channel strip. And what we're primarily going to think about there is the main channel fader. That's where people think about. And that's kind of where we get the mix. That's adjusting the level in its combination to the summing bus. But also, we're going to get mutes and solos there. So we can actually turn things on and off. We'll get a pan pot. So if we're mixing to a stereo bus, we can put something left or center or right. And we also have the ability to go to the stereo bus, maybe sub buses, maybe auxiliary buses. That's probably going to be something that we get to a little later on is how we can use these buses in various ways. So I'm going to jump here for a second. And I'm going to jump over to, I have an XR18, which is a small Behringer, uh, what I call a headless mixer. So the entire control is in software. So what we're looking at is basically an 18 channel or an 18 input mixer. And you see the channel strips run top to bottom. And channel one is on the left. Channel 16 is on the right. And we have all the functions running top to bottom. So we have the input section up here at the top. We have processing, and then we have faders and mutes and solos and pans. So what's in an input section? Well, if we look at, let's say, the bass guitar here, I'm going to select that channel. I get a mic preamp gain. I have the ability to turn on phantom power. And I don't have sound running for you now, but if you want to hear some bass, there it is. What would be in the processing section are things like dynamics. So this is, again, something that we'll probably cover in a second, in a different second hour. So we can have EQ, we can have compression, we can have a gate. Those are all different types of processing. And then we get a fader, a pan pot. So if you're listening in stereo, you should hear this go left, hear that go right. Didn't test that before, but someone give me a thumbs up if that's, well, it's got to be unmuted too. That'll help. Yeah, I don't know about yeah. everybody else, but I'm not hearing any of the music coming through at this point. Same here. Hey, Jeff, you want to jiggle your left right? How's that there? Now you're hearing something, because I was turning on the wrong switch on my ATEM. I was turning on the camera, not the mic. There we go. Now the bass is up. And is it left? Well, some of you are listening in mono, so. It's cutting in and out for me. Heidi, do you have original audio on? Thought I'd click that. Now I do. How about now? Yeah, we hear it. Okay. Y'all hear it. I don't. But that's because I didn't set up full back for myself. 
So we, before we go any further, I think we should stop there and, and kind of get questions about that basic overview of the fundamental building block of a console, which is that mixer. So we bring in inputs, we adjust them to work with the level of our console, and that's kind of the place where gain staging is most important, is in that input stage with either the mic preamp, if we're talking about a microphone, or uh, a gain adjust, a trim, if it's a line level input. And then it flows through the module, and it's generally laid out in visually top to bottom. Um, but they will put the controls you need most nearest to you. So the faders are always at the bottom. Uh, the trim, the microphone preamp gain at the top, we need to set that usually once because we've adjusted the input to come in and be a proper level. So we make that adjustment and then we don't need to get to that control as often. So the things that are important are kept uh, around that fader zone. We have processing, and again, we'll probably spend time on plugins and EQ and dynamics uh, in other shows, but most consoles will have some amount of processing in them. And then we get into the routing stage. Now, I'm only talking about routing out the stereo output to this Zoom meeting, but in a actual mix, we'll have other routing through auxiliaries, and that routing could go to uh, in-ear monitors or mix uh, wedges for foldback, that could go to a mix minus, that could go to effects send for things like a reverb. And go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and you might discuss uh, pre and post fader setting because that's a button on many mixers that confuses a lot of people uh, and how that affects the routing of the signal and the use of that particular uh, um, sound modifier that you're placing pre or post. Yeah, we lost. Did we? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. So um, the primary channel signal, what we've come in through the input and we've processed with EQ, comes down to the main fader, and that goes out to our primary stereo mix bus. But if it's going out to an auxiliary bus, an auxiliary send, um, so. These will be lots of little controls, often in an analog mixer. In a digital mixer, they'll be in another zone. I'll show you that in the XR18 in a moment. And sometimes we have the ability to bring those and substitute the large faders as controls for those. But these allow you to send that signal to another bus. And a mixer is made up of lots of buses. And remember, when you hear the word bus, that's a place where mixing happens. That's where summation happens. So the primary stereo mix bus is what's going out to program. And then the auxiliary buses do something else. And the choice pre or post fader is deciding whether you want that signal to come from before the main channel fader or after the main channel fader. And the key thing to think about is if it's pre, it's independent of that fader. And if it's post, it's dependent on the level of that fader. And when would you use pre versus post? Pre, I would generally use for uh, musician foldback. So that no matter what I do as a mixer for changing things for the audience, it doesn't change what the musicians hear. Yeah, and a lot of and times... post fader is that. often if you want to do a mix minus, if you want to do some kind of submix, and primarily for effects sense. So if you have three vocals and you want them to have the same reverb on them, you can make a combination of just those three vocals, send it to that reverb unit, 
And then if you turn up the lead vocal, you also get more reverb on the lead vocal. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, going back to the, the bus, uh, I just want to uh, add a clarification because you have buses and you have DCA groups. And in depending on your mixer, that could mean one and the same. And the, uh, in some mixers, that, that those are two different things that, uh, that do different things. But I, I'm reliant as a sound engineer in my own playing in the band. I'm very reliant on DCAs because you can, uh, you can put a whole bunch of instruments onto one DCA to be able to control uh, their sound as a whole, which is, which is great on there. But uh, you also want to make sure that if you're putting anything either into a bus or a DCA group, that you're not putting the wrong thing in. Like, for instance, if uh, you don't put the bass guitar in with the other guitars, Otherwise, when you're controlling the guitars, you're, you're affecting your bass guitar, and therefore you're going to have some really weird sounds coming out of it. So making sure that you're putting everything into the right group is very important when you're using buses or DCAs. And Jeff, uh, how would you, um, Jeff Francis, how would you distinguish DCAs from, from the buses? So a DCA is uh, a digital controlled amplifier, and that's a derivation from what we used to do in the analog world, which is a VCA, a voltage-controlled amplifier. And these are basically um, a essentially a remote master control of level. So if you assign four faders to a DCA, that DCA fader changes the level of those four faders to wherever they are routed. And right. a bus actually makes a combination of the audio. So the audio gets summed and gets combined together so, in a bus. And, and a bus can have a master volume control or a master fader in that. Right, and to make it more complicated, so you could have, a bu a, uh, you could have two different buses that are getting mostly the same things and they could be different levels in each bus, right? Each bus has its own, you can control the levels of every channel theoretically back you know, into the bus. But That's the auxiliary the, send level yeah, control. The, uh, yeah, the but if you pulled the DCA down, it would pull it down on both on both of them theoretically. If those sources were set that way, is it, you know, if the source going into the buses is that correct? Right, the DCA would pull that down, and if the auxiliary on that channel was post fader, it would also lose signal there. Right, but if it was pre fader, it's coming off before that fader, and right. so it doesn't. This is where people get lost in, in their mixer. <laughs> Just like like this is what like people understanding how those how those little bits bits go. Go ahead, Marty. Right. So I often um, uh, try to liken it to help people understand. Like imagine you have several physical mixers stacked on top of each other with a common set of inputs, and each in, each mixer has a different output that's going to a different place, like one pair of speakers or a second pair of speakers or to broadcast. And if you were to adjust the, um, the channel faders on one mixer, you would be affecting just that one output. And, you know, this would be akin to a pre-fade mixing, right? Um, which kind of looks like, looks like this. Right. So in this diagram, we have a, an input, a microphone, and it's going into this uh, uh, this main fader right here. And it's also going into these subgroup faders um, in parallel. So um, anything that happens on this main fader 
which goes to the main output, would not affect any of the subgroup faders, right? And here are the subgroup masters, which are also have inputs from all the other channels, right? However, um, pre uh, post fade mixing is a little bit different. So in this case, we have an input going to the channel fader. The output of that channel fader goes not only to the master, but also to all of the um, send bus levels as well. So anything that happens on this channel fader will also affect all of the sends. And um, so that is a key difference uh, between pre and post fade buses. Go, Bill. And in a practical sense, since I used to record a lot of band stuff, I, the front of house mix is responsible for making the sound great for the audience. They may be kicking up the bass or pulling you know, the kick drum or something in or out. For me, as someone who's going to be taking these signals and, and mixing them separately for a video afterwards, I want that pre-fade insert taken out so that the, the level's set correctly. Do not change at all, no matter what the board operator does, so that they're coming into my recorder all properly leveled, but with no changes, so that I can remix that for the video later. So that, to me, is the most critical part of pre-fade versus post-check fade. I do not want the house engineer to be messing with what's coming to me for the post work on the video, I want those all even and consistent. Right, and and using multiple buses, like for when we're doing something in the room and mixing for the web, oftentimes th there's two, di two different buses. You know, there's what's going out to the house and then what's going to the what's going out to the stream, and we're attenuating those, you know, differently. And, and having the separate buses are important, but the DCAs may still bring everything down for everybody. <laughs> you know, so so the, the but the separate buses are managing what the volume, of, for instance, of the vocals are. The vocals oftentimes will sound very forward in a web in a web, um, if you take the straight out that was going to the house, the vocals will feel like they're really far forward. Um, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey, real quick. Yeah, uh, and of course, as a musician, it's also very important because I've had where everything is uh, post-fade and uh, they, they do monitor mixes via post-fade. So if a guitar raises on the mains, they raise in my ears and that can cause me to stumble as to what I'm doing. So it's very important to make those splits. Let's go to the next. Let's go to the first question. Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia is up. When using a mixer with an ATEM and MixEffect Pro, what should you think about to ensure proper audio routing so that you can use MixEffect's video follows audio feature? And he notes that's different than the ATEM's audio follow video feature. Go ahead, Jeff. So I've not used this feature, but I was researching it a little bit earlier today because of this question and what the MixEffect Pro uh, app allows you to do is it looks at audio input levels and if an audio input level in the ATEM exceeds a certain level it will automatically switch to a certain video input and those do not have to be the same input it does not have to be the audio associated with that video input so what you need to do is you need to have at least as many audio inputs as you have cameras that you want it to automatically switch to. So say you have four cameras, uh, a close-up of person one, a close-up of person two, a close-up of person three, and a wide shot of all three. Uh, you would need to have at least three audio inputs from each of those person's microphones. So if you're using a separate mixer, you need to get out of your mixer 
an isolated feed of each of those so you can get person one's audio. And this is a place where you could use an auxiliary bus, but you don't really need to because you don't actually have to mix anything. So another thing that we didn't talk about that exists on many modules is a direct output. This will take the the input after it's been conditioned up with a phantom power and mic preamp level and all those things, and it will allow you to feed that out. And you would feed that into an input of the ATEM, and then you, that would, you would need to program the MixFX Pro app to when there is audio on that input, it would switch to the camera that's associated with that input. So this is a place where you could use the, the unbalanced analog mic ins of the ATEM because this is only using as sensing, it's not using as actual audio. So you could take three direct outputs and go into the uh, stereo mic in one and the left input of the stereo mic in two on the ATEM mini. And that would give you basically audio inputs that would trigger video switching. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Doug. Next question. Next question comes to us from Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida. And Mark says, have an old Mackie 1604 VLZ Pro I purchased back in the 90s. Several of the faders and pots are noisy. What would the panel recommend other than replacing it with something new? To clean these components, I've seen contradictory advice on YouTube. Go ahead, Jason. Yes, YouTube is where you go for contradictory advice. Um, I'm not sure about cleaning. I'll leave that to um, to someone who's actually attempted it. Um, I very quickly just did a search, and you can absolutely find these faders. They cost a couple bucks each. I, I will uh, put the link in Mukana. Um, and if you're uncomfortable with you know any sort of soldering or, or disassembly, it's easy enough to just farm this out to like you know a TV repair repair place. Um, you know someone that does soldering. And go ahead, Mitchell. You're muted, Mitch. Oh, wait, Mitch isn't here. Mitch oh, dropped uh, off. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Um, I use, um, there are chemicals that are designed for doing this. Uh, Deoxit is one of them that is a spray contact cleaner. And you can use those on the uh, analog pots of that. They're not really good pots. <laughs> They're not Penny and Giles or anything. So on, on that Mackie mixer, uh, they will do to clean up some of the noisiness for at least a little while if if there's just dirt on them if they're worn out from use this is usually isn't going to help you go jeffrey yeah deoxit and canned air were my two favorites when it came to cleaning this mac because i had a i had i had to use one that uh, that actually had three pots or three channels that were completely dead and we've opened it up and closed it up but also keep in mind that there are some components inside uh that uh that also will kill a channel like, um, and I can't think of the name of the, uh, oh, it starts with a C. Anyway, the whole capacitor. point is uh, capacitor. Thank you. Uh, if the capacitor is blown on the channel, then you're not going to get anything out of it, or if it's even worn, but it can be replaced. And that's the important thing. Good morning. Um, it's been a while since I've opened up a 1604. I don't recall if they have sealed pots or not. Um, some potentiometers and and even slide faders are are open um, so that you can get in there and spray a chemical in there that will clean the contacts and some of them are sealed so they are uh, sealed be in order to uh, in an attempt to prevent um, dust and other atmospheric contaminants from getting inside the pot and and that would include chemicals so uh, they may not be 
cleanable, they would have to be replaceable. Next question. Dean Stur in West Lynn, Oregon is here with this. Congrats on 1K shows, first of all. I'm trying to find a good index of the second hour focuses. Specifically, I'm looking for insights on digital mixing. His application is on the road gigs for voice only, and I want to minimize, he says, the amount of hardware I have to ship. Go ahead, Jeff. I can't hear you, Jeff. I was a lot quieter than I remembered. Um, my suggestion is a new RME uh, device, if you could find it. It is probably the most roadworthy audio mixer on the planet. It's a USB device about this big. Plugs in, gives you Dante capabilities and MADI capabilities. Doesn't give you much on the analog side, but they do have other versions that do. And it's hard to beat that in a backpack and to get a full digital mixer in your backpack. Right. Yeah, good. Marty? Insights into digital mixing. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little unclear whether you're looking at like um, uh, processing for mixing, uh, um, how, how a digital mixer is different from an analog mixer, or if you're looking for recommendations for what digital mixer to purchase. Um, there are a, a, a lot of really good, very affordable digital mixers on the market today, depending on the size that you need. Um, there are rack-mounted mixers that are very compact, and there are uh, desktop mixers. So a bit of a different application for you, depending on your needs. If you're looking for insights into the differences between analog mixers and digital mixers, um, that's a good idea maybe for, for a lab in after hours. Go ahead, Jeffrey. And if you're doing a single vocal and you want to keep it as minimal as possible, the flow, and you're, you're, if you're saying that you're the sound person to whoever's talking, then something like a Flow 8 would work really well because you have the app controlled. And then you can even get just simple powered mixers. Like for instance, uh, a, I have the Mackie with the SRM Connect series. So I could, I could pull the app up on my phone and uh, control it from there. It's very simple controls, but of course with vocals, you don't need to do too much uh too much uh tinkering around with that so uh all those options could be could keep your footprint low when it when it comes to setting up tearing down in fact even last week at ces i saw ev was there and they were showing off some powered uh mixers for musicians that had uh, app control to them next question Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, up next with why or why not should you set all your faders to unity gain and then do your first mix using the individual channel strip gain controls? Go ahead, Jeff. Roscoe's uh, really throwing it in there, trying to start a war between the two methods of gain, uh, gain setting. So the common method is to set the mic preamp gain or whatever the input gain stage is to give you the optimum signal level into the mixer. And whether it's an analog or digital mixer, you want that optimum level so that everything else has the greatest possible dynamic range. So you have plenty of room where you're not going to distort if that, when that signal gets loud, but you're also far away from whatever the noise floor or dither floor of that console is. Um, the only time I would change from that is uh, faders are designed to be run in their around unity area because that is where they have the most fine resolution. They're a logarithmic device. So as you pull a fader down at 20 or 30 dB of attenuation, you have much 
less control. It gets more coarse. So if I had a signal that was really hot, really loud, and I was always running that signal down at minus 30 or 40 dB on the fader, I may trim the input down on that signal so that I have more fine control by running the fader. If I drop the input 20 dB, I could run that fader at minus 10 instead and still get the same contribution to the bus, but now very small moves of the fader don't create large volume changes. Good morning. That's exactly right. And if we're looking at a fader here, you can see that um, here's the zero point, which is unity gain. And here is, um, you know, this far down, the fader is 5 dB less, right? So this distance in fader travel would represent a 5 dB reduction in your output gain. But if you look down here, um, the diff distance, uh, the same physical distance represents a, a drop in 20 dB of gain from minus 30 to minus 50. So you have a lot less control um, here to make small adjustments. Um, and right up here, you can make uh, very fine adjustments with uh, small movements of the fader. And uh, unity gain is where the mixer is, the circuitry is designed to be uh, most efficient. Uh, the correct balance between signal to noise ratio and headroom to clipping. So um, that is, uh, as a rule, is a good place for your faders to be operating. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rule that can be broken. And it's very often uh, I may be running faders down a little bit, maybe minus 5, minus 10, depending on the application, whether it's an input fader or an output fader. Um, there are a lot of times when I'll have an output fader that's feeding a loudspeaker running 20 dB down because I want that speaker to be lower in volume than uh, another bus, perhaps, that has a louder output. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and I've always been uh, told or taught that Unity, uh, you never go past 10 or uh, either way. Uh, if you're going past 10, then you need to really take a look at your gain knob and, of course, your EQ knobs to make sure that uh, everything is in alignment. Uh, because uh, and when you see a soundboard that where all the faders are all in different directions, it just it's it's an OCD thing for me now, <laughs> because it I, everything just needs to be at unity or slightly above or slightly below. Next question. Next question comes from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, and John says, "What are the benefits and negatives of analog versus digital mixers?" Go ahead, Jeff. So the primary difference besides the actual electronic or digital signal flow under the hood is the what you get on the surface. An analog console most commonly requires a one knob per function. So you actually have, circ you have circuitry, so the audio runs through a fader and, or a knob, and when you turn that, that's actually a potentiometer that's changing voltage. On a digital mixer, that is a remote control for a computer. And so digital mixers tend to use one central, what is often termed a super channel that has one set of controls, as opposed to an analog console where it has the same set of controls repeated over and over and over and over and over again. So if you like the one knob uh, per function approach, you can always get there. And that knob is usually a display as well because it's got a particular position. Um, 
or if you'd like to bring everything to the center, that's the digital. Um, the primary uh, benefit of analog is zero latency because analog signals, well, it's not perfectly zero, but it's effectively zero because uh, electricity goes really, really fast. Every digital console has some amount of latency through it, through analog to digital conversion, and then the math that has to happen in there. What's the great benefit of digital consoles? Uh, complete flexibility, versatility, instant recall, and you can save tons and tons of snapshots so you can jump instantly from one setting to another. Go ahead, Jeff. So at the very end, Jeff took my thunder. Yeah, flexibility is my biggest part uh, for us. Uh, size and flexibility, those are like hand in hand. Uh, the PM3000 that I started with was about 250 pounds, I think, maybe 300 pounds. Uh, now I can carry twice the amount of capability, not even twice, like 10, 20 times more uh, capabilities in a, something that's a rack mount size or even smaller. Uh, it, for us, it's flexibility, and the routing is just so much more flexible than an analog. You have to go one-to-one -one on everything, and it's just, it's a pain, lots of pain. Uh, Jeffrey? I'll add to that hums and bus buzzes, because now I know if I have any types of hums or bus buzzes, I'm going to the guitarist's pedal board and figuring out what pedal they have turned on, because most of the time, that's where that problem comes. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I'll agree. Flexibility and expandability. But another point is that uh, you have fewer points of failure with a digital mixer because the signal processing all happens inside a, a digital signal processor instead of being routed from point to point within analog components uh, through the EQ or through the aux ends, et cetera, where there's mechanical switches to route all this stuff. And so if you get one noisy switch or one bad switch, it can uh, contaminate the signal all the way through. And all of those are electronic or virtual in the digital world, so uh, you don't have those points of failure in that serial processing of audio. Good, Marty. There are some that say that an analog mixer is more reliable than a digital mixer because there's less to go wrong inside of it. And, you know, to some degree, that may be true. Um, however, digital mixers and uh Computing chips and I.O. chips have become so reliable that, you know, we all rely on them now. But another main difference is that on a on an analog mixer, you may have a three band EQ in the channel strip. And that's about it. You don't get any compressors, noise gates, expanders, other processing um, and so it's very common, whether it be a permanent installation or a roll-around rack or whatever, to find um, outboard gear, um, physical pieces of equipment that are 32-band equalizers, uh, two to three or four-band compressors, noise gates, all of these outboard gears. And every outboard gear can handle only one or two audio channels. And so there may be lots of them. Um, if you look at, uh, you'll find pictures uh, in recording studios where there's an entire wall of outboard gear and this humongous patch bay to patch different processes, whether they be reverbs, echoes, equalizers, dynamics processors, into each and every channel on, you know, this big mixer in a studio. So whether you're doing, you know, straight PA where you need to 
equalize the loudspeakers in the room to flatten them out. Another one to do feedback suppression on specific uh, feedback frequencies. These are all outboard gear that you would need to patch into an analog mixer. With a digital mixer, you have a four or six band parametric EQ on every input. You have a six band or more parametric EQ on every output. You've got all these processes already built into this one device. So economy, efficiency, speed of operation, um, the user interface is very well integrated in a digital mixer. So there are a lot of advantages to it. I mean, I think, I think there's, there's a flavor that you get out of analog mixers in a recording studio that, and with all the outboard stuff and the ability to go in and out of those things that has, you know, that, that may have some advantages. I don't think there's any other advantages other than cost. You know, the analog mixers are cheaper. Uh, I thought that I would try to keep it simple for, uh, and you know, for many rooms, we've been doing many sessions. And so I bought like 12 of these little like analog mixers thinking that'll be easier for the audio engineers. And it just was way worse. <laughs> so yeah, go ahead, Jeff. So you spoke about analog mixers in the recording studio and people use outboard gear and analog tape machines. And I think that has less to do with the actual console and more to do with the way that it forces you to make decisions. It limits you and limiting mm -hmm. is great for creativity. Um, yeah. If you put a, if you put a guitar player or anyone who's going to be a soloist and you tell them there's one track left on our 24 track analog tape, and so you did a solo, and if we're going to do another version of your solo, we're erasing the previous one by recording over it. Uh, people, people tend to you know, commit their decisions much better when the, than the opposite when there's an undo key. Yeah, there's and, and another another key difference. Mm -hmm. If I can just chime in, sorry. Sure. Um, with an analog mixer, if you're in a if you're in a venue, right, and you're mixing from the back of the house. You may be 150, 200 feet away from the stage, and so your microphone preamps are at the end of a 250-foot piece of wire. Right. With a digital mixer, you can put those preamps right up on the stage, and it's turned into digital and coming so back to the console. A couple of Ethernet cable, primary backup Ethernet cable coming back to you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, it, it, um, yeah, I would not buy an analog mixer at this point like unless i was unless it was an esoteric reason to do it even i would rather spend a little bit more i mean the quality you give up and the flexibility you give up as everybody's been outlining here is so dramatic you know um that i would i would not not recommend it um, next question gordon lake los angeles california up next and gordon says how do you take eight streams of audio from zoom iso and get it into the x32 rack with no dante card I'm running Zoom ISO on an M1 Mac Mini, he says, and the videos are going out through a DeckLink Quad 2. Good morning. That's another one of the beauties of digital mixing is that most of them have a multi-channel USB interface in them. And so you can, from whatever software you're using, you can output multiple channels from the software. Um, so if you have an eight channels of uh, Zoom ISO, um, you ought to be able to route them in a Mac, and somebody else will have to address that part for me, uh, onto the USB bus and into the X32 or the XR18 uh, on individual channels. And then 
conversely, you can get multiple channels out of the mixer going into your software and then mix them in the computer if you want to. Go ahead, Jeff. That's definitely one route to do it. Uh, another route would be de-embedders. So you're taking the SDIs out. You're going to de-embed the SDI audio that's coupled with each one of those ISO outputs and then take those analogs into your Zoom, I, uh, your whatever your X32 rack is, if you have enough inputs for that. I would just highly suggest is beg, borrow, steal, but don't steal, but beg or borrow at least a uh, Dante card as fast as you can because once you go that route, there's just no turning back. $700 right now. <laughs> on eBay. If you can find them in stock, that they're, they're, stock they're in stock on eBay at seven hundred seven hundred nine dollars. Not that I'm watching the the uh, <laughs> the the whole thing, and they ship worth every penny. Yes, yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm I because I'm trying to get an extra two for my house, and I and I am just waiting for the Dante card, and I may just go ahead and pony up the extra money to get the the card now because it's been back ordered on Sweetwater and everywhere else for a long time. Um, so, but they are, they are available on eBay. I'll probably sell them out right now by saying that, but anyway, um, there's like four or five of them right now. Uh, next question. Rob Collins, Kansas city, Missouri. When the audio input has its own volume control, what volume level do you set it at before it goes into a mixer? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Some people will say uh, 70%, but I will say all the way at the max. We're usually talking about laptops and phones and keyboards and so I want to make sure that the maximum output it's going to create is not going to clip anything downstream and all my gain stages are set right. And plus, that's usually the only place that is re resettable, that we can get back to that known quantity. So if someone leaves and comes back, they set it back to max and we're in the same place. You go, Jeffrey. The only time that I change that is, uh, it, well, if you're doing onstage stuff, it things just happen it, it, and uh, somebody turns a dial and next thing you know it's just way too loud or it's just clipping and if you're hitting it if you pull it all the way 100 percent, and it just clips your audio then you want to back it down a little bit uh till the point where that of course that clipping doesn't happen but then somebody presses a pedal and then that just mm -hmm. takes it all the way to a, a different direction so uh it really depends on what the device is and how good of quality that device is. Good, Jeff. I'm going to have to disagree with the other Jeffs, not just because I spell their name wrong, but I think that you need to go up with the volume to hear the noise because at 10 or max, even laptops, if you turn them up all the way, there is a chance there's going to be noise in those because those preamps in a laptop are made for the little speakers or the headphones, not for a high output. So I usually start at 50%. And then I make it up in gain stage if I need to, but I rarely would go 100% because I want to have a little room to move. Just different way of doing things. Yeah, it definitely depends on the output. Like I'll never use a headphone jack from a laptop ever. Like <laughs> so, so like I, I would, I you know, I, I I care, you know, we. So in that environment, then it just depends on where you start to hear that noise. I do agree that hearing the noise is something we worry about. Typically, I'm using a USB Pre two to to get the analogs out, just because I've been using them forever. Um, but and they're rock solid. Um, but uh, but I would, but I again, I think you're probably right. If you're using the headphone jack, um, you probably have to be very very careful of what it's outputting. But I would not not ever do that. Um, next it works question. just fine for headphones. So for headphones, that's it. <laughs> like, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. How would you maintain proper gain structure when plumbing synths into a console? Is the general best practice to bring up the game until the gain until it barely tickles the red light and then bring it down? Go ahead, Jeff. Unless the synth has a 
Pro line level XLR balanced output, I would use a direct box. So a direct box takes an instrument level signal, which is typically unbalanced, quarter inch, and it drops that to uh, a mic category signal. So it's balanced and XLR, and then it would go from there into a mic preamp. And yeah, then you're just setting gain like you would any mic. So it doesn't clip. The question I have for you is, so I've got a, let's say I have a, a synthesizer that's got a lot of output. So you put a direct box on each one of them to, on each one of those outputs to convert that? If you want all the outputs, yes. Okay. Some synths will do a stereo mix inside the synth, but that obviously ties your hands mixing wise. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Marty. Um, so if you're, if this is in your own studio, then in turn, terms of uh, gain staging and adjusting gain, so I would have the synth volume on the, on the unit itself turned up to at least 75%, maybe 90%, could even be at 100%. And that would be the max volume output. And we, this is especially important if you're working with a live band on stage. You know, uh, very often during the event, the musician will want to turn their instrument up really, really loud. And if you haven't prepared for that on the preamp of your mixer, it's going to overdrive and go into clipping. So I always want to see the musician send me the maximum volume at 100%. I will ad- and play at a loud volume, and then I'll adjust my preamp so that it won't clip at that point, and then I'll work from there. So then they'll bring their their instrument down to the average play level, and I'll be working with my faders to adjust levels. And if you're in your own studio, that's not a bad process uh, to use either. Good, Jeffrey. And some of these, uh, well, depending on your mixer, you could have uh, you could have certain channels that are dedicated for things like keyboards. Uh, and of course, they'll have the the dual uh, plug in them, so you can plug either a quarter inch or an XLR from there. Uh, if you're doing one keyboard, that's what I would do. If you've got somebody that brings eight keyboards to the gig because they've got some progressive rock band, I would have some interface in between that's controlling all eight of them, so I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to worry about that. On uh, and and of course, if they're also way away from the uh, from the mixing board, I want to keep a, a good amount of power going through the uh, chords. Next question. Next one from Bob Sturdevant in San Antonio, Texas. What would a good prosumer mixer be for a hobbyist to dip their toe into the water to learn more about mixing? Very curious what people would say there. I mean, the one that when people say I'm getting started and I know that it's a little bit more expensive, I tend to lean towards XR18s. Um, uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. If you can't get the XR32, just get an XR12 or an oh, XR18. XR18, yeah. Y- yeah, yeah, and then and then you're good. I I started on QSC with my digital. Actually, I started on Yamaha with my digital mixers, uh, but then I, I've got the QSC Touch Mix, and that's a great one because it's small. It's like a laptop, and uh, you can really cut your teeth on that, and then uh, take it over to something like a Midas. Yeah, go Jeff. I tend to go a little bit more elaborate, I guess, than some people. I would just load up software. That, that will teach you a whole lot in the, the overall structure, the gain structure, and things like that. So I would go with a Mixbus. Well, maybe not the Mixbus, but uh, Mixbus by Harrison is a great, re- relatively free software to be able to download and use and get your ideas around it. But there are others out there that that allow you to do just about everything you need to do in the audio world without spending a whole lot of money. There you go, Jason. 
To round the answer out, if you really want to understand the fundamentals of mixing, this is the use case for a small analog mixer. Um, it, it Because it's so set in its ways, you know, understanding a mix minus is very easy on, you know, set aux sends with, you know, a return that you can hard patch and just, you know, turn down that one aux send and now you're done. So um, to round the answer out, this is probably the best possible place for an analog. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, if you're really looking to understand the principles and processing for uh, and principles of uh, digital mixing or mixing in general, because there isn't a whole lot of difference uh, between what you're listening for and what you're mixing for between analog and digital, there's just different tools that you can use. So to understand that, um, you want to find a digital mixer that has a USB multi-channel, and that's key, multi-channel uh, USB interface with the software like the XR18 um, or the TouchMix or any of those. And um, you'll also want to find a, a digital audio workstation and some multi-channel material that you can load up. And this will give you like... Um, a conference with m many people speaking on different channels or a musical performance with instruments on different channels. And now you can get those, uh, all of those sources into different channels of the mixer and begin to play with the different tools and processes that are, that are in there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that I, uh, the XR18 is mostly if you have things you're trying to plug into something and you may find that you just end up with spending a lot of money on interfaces if you don't have that, if you're trying to go into software. Um, also on the Mac, for something that looks more like a mixer for software, um, SoundDesk by Loud Lab is something I've been experimenting with and I'm pretty happy with um, as far as it just looks like a mixer. It's not... I, I really like Mixbus as well, but it looks more like a DAW. <laughs> you know, so it, it acts and it, it's like a DAW. If you want to see what a mixer is like on a Mac, um, SoundDesk is, is really kind of built for that. So I would definitely check that out as well. Next question. Next question comes from Harshid Travidi here on the panel, from, or often from Daytona Beach. ASC's here today. On Unity, Unity Gain, what position is the pot set to? Example, turn it up to 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock. Right, go ahead, Jeff. I'm actually going to ask Harshid which pot he means. Is this a particular pot on a particular gain. mixer? Yeah, I'm going to guess the gain pot is what he's asking about. Like, where does he turn that? And it's not really a place, right? It's not. It's not a specific location that you're trying to do that. If you're doing the unity gain, right, you're going to bring the you're going to bring your uh, fader up to zero and then set your. It's like you're not setting the gain to three o'clock. You're setting it to where it makes sense. Is that is that correct, Jeff? So if it's if it's an input, there will be a place where it is unity, meaning it will take a line input and will provide that line input without change into the mixer. Um, but usually, what we're talking about is a is a that would be a trim on a mic input of those kind of little analog mixers. But if you plug, uh, sorry, a trim on the line input, which is usually the quarter inch next to the XLR. If you plug into the XLR input that will always have some amount of gain. So on small mixtures, they actually, uh, they kind of cheap out. Um, and what they do f to make a line input is they actually just take the line input and they reduce it 20 dB and they go into the mic input. So the knob does two functions. But I see you shaking your head, so maybe we're talking about the wrong knob. No, no, that, that was correct. So, uh, sorry, I 
trying to do the hand raising thing here, but just on a quick note, what I'm speaking of is every knob is different. So if you're shifting from left to right, uh, which is balance, the knob feels different. So unity to me is keeping it right at 12 o'clock. Um, on the gain knob, where I would set that to about 4.30 to 5 o'clock, that would be maximum gain on the gain knob. So I was just trying to give it uh, some context because we did have some questions in the accessibility realm and people are interested in getting an analog mixer because it's actual physical knobs that you're you're twisting and turning. So if I like hold my Yamaha up, I've learned that each... As you as you said, each uh, XLR port is its own channel, and then each individual has, as you mentioned, the, the high band, mid band, low band, a compressor, a, uh, a FX channel uh, knob, and then the not the volume for that whole channel. So I just wanted to kind of get clarification if Unity would mean twelve o'clock. Let's say if you're panning left and right, and then on a gain knob, what would that Unity be? So it depends on what the knob function is. So if it's the the gain controls in an equalizer, so that would be the, the high boost, high cut, mid boost, mid cut, low boost, low cut. That's a, that's a low gain knob. It does boost and cut. So in those conditions, 12 o'clock, and usually there's a, there's a little detent. You feel a little bump in the knob at that point where it sticks. And that is that 12 o'clock position is unity, meaning we're not making an EQ change. We're not boosting and we're not cutting the lows. And then if you go uh, clockwise, go up to three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, you're adding lows. And if you go counterclockwise, you're removing lows. If you switch to the pan or the balance control, that is uh, taking the signal and it's sending it to either the left or the right bus or some combination. That again, has a center detent because that is the center pan position. And if you put turn it counterclockwise, it goes left in the image. And if you turn it clockwise, it goes right in the image. But that's not uh, a gain control knob. And then generally with uh, faders, if you have a instead of a linear fader, a slider, if you have a rotary fader, a rotary, rotary potentiometer, that's generally unity is going to be somewhere in that 70 uh, percent. So say 130, something like there. Yes, and then know. the ones at the very top being the mic preamp, that totally depends on your mic sensitivity and how loud your source is. Jason, real quick. And the, and the only um, thing I'll add to that is insert. Right. Uh, if, uh, if you have something on insert, then you want to- We're moving uh, fast. So we just gotta, you, gotta, you gotta be in the, in the queue. Uh, J, uh, I Jason, was in the queue. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry. I, I, I missed it. Sorry. My, my, my fault. Go ahead, Jason. Um, to, to condense that, EQ is about neutrality, not unity. So, you know, what you want is for it to not mess with anything. Um, unity gain is going to be different. The lower end mixers um, aren't always going to be calibrated for this. The higher end ones are. I would say as a rule, um, this is going to be tricky if you're visually impaired because you don't have the meters. You know, you can't just hit the solo thing, cut everything else out, and then, um, and then do it visually. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, as a general rule, every gain pot, uh, with the exception of the preamp, uh, twelve o'clock would be uh, would be what we are calling unity gain. With the preamp gain pot, there the only, there really is no such thing as unity gain uh, with a microphone because it's all about the output level voltage of the microphone, and everyone is different, and you just want to adjust that preamp gain until you have the right 
volume going through the rest of the mixer. Unity gain in a preamp might come into play with a line level, a true line level signal, um, you know, which is at a plus four dBm. Um, but other than that, um, uh, there is no unity gain on preamps. So every, but every other gain pot on a mixer would be, I would say, twelve o'clock. Good, Courtney. Yeah, what I do is uh, most mixers will have a little mark on them. Like, uh, un unfortunately, for the visually impaired, you may not be able to see that mark. And, and the uh, the one that I'm using now, the Rodecaster, there's a little tick mark here, about three quarters of the way up on each slider. And so I set the uh, set that input level, that mixer level, at unity, and then adjust the input level, which is the trim pot uh, that adjusts the input level till I get a usable signal at unity gain. And that way you have somewhere to go on the mix level above and below uh, without getting distortion. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. In a digital mixer, should the bus sample rate always be higher than the signals being mixed? Is 192 kilohertz sufficient? Go ahead, Jeff. Generally, the sample rate of the mixer is going to be the same as the sample rate of all the inputs coming in, and that saves us from having to do sample rate conversion, which is going to add latency. Um, now, the actual bit depth processing of the mixer should be much greater than the 24-bit signal that's coming in. So the mixer should be at least 32-bit floating point calculation, perhaps double that to do 64-bit floating point. Uh, the only case where we need higher sample rates for signals is when we're doing things that are nonlinear, which is distortion and compression and limiting. And that's a case where a good mixer can actually upsample. So the mixer's running at 48K, your 48 kilohertz signal comes in. You want to do uh, some fancy saturation to it. You upsample that signal, go through the saturation plugin, and then downsample, removing the aliasing artifact components that it created because distortion will create frequencies above half the sample rate and they will alias so we need to remove them by going in up sample good morning yeah jeff covered that pretty well um there i would say that you know depending on the material you're working with and the intended audience for that material there's a uh, a point of diminishing returns when you get up into the super high sampling rates like 192. Uh, most of the work we're doing today is at 48 or at 96. next question dean stir in westland oregon is in with this with digital mixing software after doing the initial setup using the app i'm considering using stream deck to easily control channel fade in mute and master mute any thoughts good morning yeah, Stream Deck is a, and especially um, um, companion for Stream Deck, uh, is a really cool tool for that because uh, you, there are there are settings that you can you can program a button to do relative level, and you can program a button on the Stream Deck to do absolute level. So what you're referring to is doing relative level, which means that you can bump up and down. So you would use two buttons, one up, one down would be a small increment from where the fader is currently. So, you know, you want to go up a tenth of a dB higher or half a dB higher, whereas absolute level would be take the fader to this particular absolute level, um, which is not what you're looking for. Jeff? You can go on. Okay, <laughs> next question. Last one, uh, Kenny Hampton in uh, Greenville, Illinois. With respect to EQ, is pre-fade typically pre-EQ it affects 
also where no EQ and effects goes to that pre-fade output. Good morning. Can't hear right. you, Marty. Marty, you're muted. Okay. Uh, right. So the order of processing in a mixer is uh, is generally in this order. Um, we have input. There's a noise gate. Uh, there's an equalizer. There's a compressor, and then there are the outputs. But uh, this is a this is the X32. Um, the feature I'm going to show you is not available on the XR18, and it gives you the ability to change things around. So you see this input, this uh, insert point right here, where I could take an effect from the effects rack in the X32 and insert it here, such as a reverb or or another effect. Um, and it's between the gate and the EQ. I can move it over to here at the end of the signal chain. So after everything has been EQ'd and compressed, it can the, the effect will live here. The other thing that you can do is swap around the dynamics and the equalizer. So you see, uh, and normally the equalizer would come before the dynamics processor. And this is useful if you're taking out unwanted signal like low-end mud or rumbling noise. You want to take that out before you do any compression. Um, but in some cases, you may want to move that around and do compression before you do your EQ. And this particular mixer gives you that kind of flexibility. Um, not every mixer does. Some other mixers may give you even more flexibility. That's one of the things to evaluate when you're looking at product. Well, that's great. That was a great hour. <laughs> Marty and Jeff, thanks for getting all set up and building us a little little demos and uh, in, in, and uh, visuals and, and really allow us to start uh, explaining that. We're hoping to do more of this in every category, audio being uh, obviously one of the most important categories that we're using, uh, that we're going to be covering, but really trying to dig into basics um, at least once a month where we're going to dig into something and really um, tie it in and, and really walk through it because I think it's important for us to get these basics sorted out um, as we move forward. We can talk about a lot of esoteric things related to audio, but it's really important that we understand how all this stuff actually works. Um, and hopefully we're going to follow up with this uh, and with labs in the future as well so that people can kind of dig into those. It's a little harder because we all have different things, but I think that some more open discussions about that um, is, uh, is going to be um, moving forward. And so if you've got ideas of basics that you want us to cover, make sure to go into the second hour uh, suggestions inside of Discord and let us know what those things are that you'd like us to cover. We've got a list of ideas, but uh, we're always open to other ones that people may have there. Um, thanks again to, again, Je Je uh, Jeff and Marty, but also everybody on the panel who came and, and gave a lot of good input uh, related to that. We can't do this without you. And uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end uh, that makes this happen every single day with power, without power, <laughs> figuring things out. Uh, we've, we've had some close calls in the last couple of days. Um, and uh, it's been it's been really amazing to see how resilient our system has become. It's not just that we're doing a show every day. It's that the reason we do a show every day is because there's a lot of people working on it and there's a lot of people contributing to it. And we just want to just, we just really appreciate everything that everybody's doing, both on the back end and, and in the panel. And of course, thanks to the producers who are asking all the great questions, keeping our conversation going. We really can't do that without you either because we don't have a plan when we get here. We got a little plan, like Je Jeff and Marty had a, had, a, had a little plan here, but we don't have a plan for an hour. We really depend on the producers to, to show up um, for the live show and actually interact with us to make sure that we have a show. So thank you to everyone who came for the live broadcast. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours.
79,000 miles, 128,000 kilometers. 86 billion minions. <laughs> so the real question is, is the whispering in prayer post mode? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the um, uh, 721 million bananas per scale. It's important wow. statistics. It's a lot of potassium. The three Jeffs have a total of six Fs between them. <laughs> it's only five Fs, actually, because there's one F, Jeff. And then eight. Uh, I'm counting last names, too. Are you counting the F in the one F, Jeff? You Is don't know my middle name, do you? Gotta stay F sharp, you know. F's the surname. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Marty.